Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Building a Better Story World. I, Steel Tyler Filipek, have returned to guide you on your journey to crafting better universes for your characters and audiences to inhabit. Whether you're a writer, an artist, a marketer, or just here to understand how the lands of imagination are built, take a load off as we explore your dream worlds. We've gone over the basics of creating a traditional story and a traditional story world, so now it's time to get into some of the advanced design elements. The next several episodes will be dealing with the stuff under the hood, so to speak. Those bits and bobs of essence that are sometimes hard to understand or elucidate, even for veteran designers such as myself. Many writers prefer to let these fundamental elements emerge organically in their work, and if that's you, I'm sincerely envious of your creativity. On the other hand, if you are one of those who are struggling to understand why something just isn't clicking, it might be good to list a few ingredients of the secret sauce. Keep a notebook and pencil handy if you'd like to take part in our exercises, and don't forget that you can write to me with your ideas if you want to have your work critiqued. I'll give details at the end of the episode. As always, this is not a requirement, so buckle up and let's get moving. The topic of today is one of many names. Some call it the fundamental divergence. Others term it the difference, or the key difference. We at Starlight Runner call it the lie, but whatever you know it as, it is the same thing. It is the one single element that is different about your story world from all others. Think to your favorite narrative universes, and you'll note that they all have one big thing that sets them apart from everything else. It might be something grandiose, like the existence of supernatural horror. I can't die like this! I need a priest! My friend is a priest. He'll hear your sins before you die, unless... unless I make her one of us. No! Or it could be something more subtle, like how a family of five manages to survive on a single working-class salary. This is a critical bit of information. It not only defines whatever it is that you're writing, but also helps differentiate it from similar content. Marvel Comics and DC Comics depict interconnected worlds of superheroes, Friends and Living Single are about a group of 20-somethings struggling in love and life. Planet Money and Freakonomics are about improbable tales dealing with money, wealth, and the economy. Unlike in previous episodes, we'll be exploring each of these case studies to help you understand how critical the lie is to a story world's foundation. Because of that, if you're following along, I want you to take out a piece of paper or your word processor of choice and write down three sentences about your narrative or perhaps just one big one that inspires you. This doesn't have to be perfect, and it doesn't have to be all-encompassing. You're just describing the world. Try not to delve too much into your story so much. We're getting into the fundamentals of what will set up all the various adventures in your world. Give yourself space on the front of the paper or document. As we go through this assignment, I'll want you to take notes, come up with ideas, and iterate on this initial concept. Use the back of the paper if you need it. You may get it right on the very first go, or it may take some time. Don't fret. Finish up your description, pause if you need time, and then restart when you're ready. The most important thing about this lie that separates your world from all others is that you only get one. Many, many other elements can exist to help support this distinction, but if you overwhelm your story with divergences from reality, it will begin to feel like a mishmash, or worse yet, silly, and not in the good way. It's why people can buy starships shooting across the cosmos, but reject shallow love stories. The former are built in a world that has a good fundamental essence, while the latter are built in our world, the rules of which we know all too well. My mother told me what was necessary to rule in this universe. By killing people? 
I create life! Starlight Runner calls these kitchen sink franchises, in that everything and the kitchen sink is thrown in to try and grab the audience's attention. The creator tries to solve story problems with more and more rules rather than solid narrative fundamentals. Remember that audiences care about characters. The world you craft allows both of those groups to interact in the imagination. Anything more than the bare minimum risks showing the cracks in the facade of your shared dream. An author could create a world with illusionary islands, polar bears, monsters made up of black smoke, global conspiracies, and millennia-long sibling rivalries that deal with immortality, and it may work for a time. But eventually, you'll have to tie them all together, and the entire superstructure will collapse. Found a way off the island. No, it's impossible. There isn't a way off the island. But rather than focus on those story worlds that got it wrong, let's talk about the story worlds that got it right. First up, a pair of universes that are built on decades of stories. The continuities are often messy. The characters have evolved over time, sometimes gracefully and sometimes awkwardly. Yet the power of the original conceit in each story world shows the strength of their fundamental differences, or their lies, and how they can reach audiences across generations. We'll begin with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is a dangerous place to begin. Not because it has struggled, far from it, as it is now the most successful film franchise in history. It's just that everybody in Hollywood saw the Avengers, or more importantly, its box office returns, and then said, I want one of those, without putting in the research to understanding how it was constructed. The films emerged organically, and were overseen by a franchise visionary, topics we'll cover in due time on this podcast. But the creators of those works also knew what made Marvel Comics stand out in the 60s, 70s, 80s, all the way up to today. You gotta say I love you back. Dad, are you serious? I wanna hear it. You wanna hear it. I me love say you, it? Dad. You're dropping me off out of school. I love you, Dad. Look at this place. Dad, I love you. Dad. I love you. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, just like in its comic book foundations, superheroes are normal people. They may be initially smarter or stronger or wealthier than the average human, but they deal with very human frailties. Alcoholism. Don't think, drink. Arrogance. I slipped. Right, you slipped as a result of me punching you in the face. I was already slipping when you happened to punch me in the face. The two events are not related. A desperate desire to please a father figure. I just, I just wanted to be like you. And I wanted you to be better. Even when you have a literal god in the form of Thor, Marvel Studios made sure to ground that character in humanity. The Jotuns must learn to fear me, just as they once feared you. That's pride and vanity talking, not leadership. You've forgotten everything I taught you. But a warrior's patience. While you wait and be patient, the Nine Realms laugh at us. In his initial film, Thor is bereft of a magical weapon, Mjolnir. He's cast out of Asgard. He hooks up with a loose group of mortals. He learns what it means to serve, to be humble, to love. This gives the character room to grow and, importantly, allows us to identify with him. Where were you? Where were you? I was right here where you left me. I was waiting, and then I was crying, and then I went out looking for you. You said you were coming back. Jane, I fought to protect you from the dangers of my world, but I was wrong. I was a fool. It's an easy handle for every superhero because audiences see themselves in the people doing heroic things. Peter Parker might have the powers of a spider, but he is usually just a normal high school student. 
T'Challa is the king of Wakanda, but his main struggle is to live up to his father's expectations while simultaneously realizing his father's faults. Ant-Man is a superhero, but his alter ego, Scott Lang, is an ex-con trying to go straight. Now are you ready to redeem yourself? Absolutely. My days of breaking into places and stealing shit are done. What do you want me to do? I want you to break into a place and steal some shit. Every Marvel movie is about superheroes, but only secondarily. There is some greater genre or archetype that allows for the human struggle to mix things up. Compare this with the DC Cinematic Universe. People hate what they don't understand. Be their hero, Clark. Be their angel. Be their monument. Be anything they need you to be. While those of you who have been listening closely will know that I'm not 100% on board with this franchise's depictions of Superman and Batman, I think that the depictions of Shazam, Wonder Woman, and the various television series that ran concurrently with those shows were pulled off with masterful execution. They didn't need to be perfect stories because they understood the power dynamic present in DC dating all the way back to Action Comics number one. We, as a population on this planet, have been looking for a savior. Every religion believes in some sort of messianic figure. And when the savior character actually comes to Earth, we want to make him abide by our rules. We have to understand that this is a paradigm shift. We have to start thinking beyond politics. That's because DC, from its very beginning, has showcased superheroes as gods among us. Wonder Woman is an immortal goddess who fights literal divinities. Shazam is the champion of an ancient wizard in the form of a boy, Billy Batson, who can transform into a superhero with arcane powers. Even Batman, who is supposedly just a normal person, has more money, gadgets, time, patience, and training than any human being could ever possibly hope to achieve. What are your superpowers again? I'm rich. DC Comics, then, speaks to an audience's desire to achieve, to overpower, to be victorious. We can live vicariously through The Flash, Supergirl, and Cyborg, even though we can never hope to be as empowered because we all dream about being so accomplished. It taps into the same thrill human beings get when they watch professional sports or reality television set in far-off locales. We all want a bit of that magic. Say my name so my powers may flow through you. But I don't know your name, sir. Shazam. So for your own story... I want you to come up with your fundamental difference. What is at the foundation of your narrative universe? If it is magic, how is it tied with the very existence of your story world? If it is science, what is the single technological leap forward that has set your world apart from the real one? If it is paranormal horror, how has the interplay between the natural and supernatural perpetuated itself over the millennia? Or how did it first begin? And if it is something more real, like a brand or a comedy, what kind of basic human desire does your story speak to? Take some time to think this over. Write a few, then see which fits best. It is critical that you get this right. You don't want to create a whole story world and have to fill in holes because you got this initial divergence wrong. If needs be, set it aside and think about it as we go into the next segment, which deals with all of the stuff that supports your lie. This second aspect of the lie showcases how the primary story world differentiator is not fun in and of itself. Your lie has probably been used millions of times in other stories, albeit with permutations. It should be small, simple, and easy to identify. That doesn't leave a lot of room for imagination, and it's not necessarily a problem. An old story told well is a beautiful thing. In other words, there's nothing wrong with tropes if they're used in an artful manner. Your own lie is the kernel for something far grander. 
your own individual artistry. That craftsmanship, or that of your favorite creator, is what really brings people back to a story world again and again. We will be getting into this more in the next episode, but know that all of the elements that support your lie are where audiences, quote, find the fun, unquote. Lightsabers, proton packs, walking closets filled with shoes, fighting over dwindling resources while undead hordes hound you day and night. This is where you can bring your own flair to the situation. Consider Men in Black sly. Back in the mid-1950s, the government started a little underfunded agency with the simple and laughable purpose of establishing contact with a race not of this planet. Everybody thought the agency was a joke, except the aliens who made contact March 2, 1961, outside New York. In short, aliens walk among us. This has been used in countless stories dating back to H.G. Wells and even earlier. What sets the MIB apart from those stories is that Earth is a neutral site and kept neutral by a secret agency that is above the law. These people selflessly put themselves on the line to prevent alien invasion, hiding in plain sight, and keeping the masses from panicking by making sure that no civilian ever learns about what is going on behind the curtain. Humans, for the most part, don't have a clue. They don't want one or need one either. They're happy. They think they have a good bead on things. But why why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Men in Black is about aliens, of course, but it is really a police procedural with the flair of a buddy cop movie. That is a story world. A story world need not be so grand, however. Long-form content in the form of television shows or podcasts or paperback novels all can be based in surroundings that more closely mirror our own. ER, Grey's Anatomy, House, Chicago Med, The Good Doctor, Royal Pains, I could go on and on and on about all the medical procedurals for which people tune in every week, let alone every cop show, murder mystery, and legal drama that is on the airwaves across the world. To survive, creators must craft quality content that stands out from the crowd. These franchises must be engaging, but there must also be some sort of cool factor to them that is built off of their initial premise. For our second case study, then, let's explore two hyper-popular shows about early adulthood in New York City. Friends. And Living Single. Both shows were about groups of roommates living together in the big, scary city. They got into and out of scrapes involving jobs, money, and love. Both were episodic comedies with spicy bits of serialized drama. They even shared the same time slot for a while. The core difference between the two was in the complicating bits that surrounded them. Now, when I say complicating, complexity, or complications, I don't mean making things difficult. Some shows are actually quite simple, which allows for endless replication along a set pattern. Consider how both Sherlock Holmes and Scooby-Doo follow a pattern of clue revelation, potential suspects, chases, and a final reveal. Van Buren Supernova. Exploding star. Only appeared in the sky in 1858. So how could it have been painted in the 1640s? Zoinks! It's Mr. Carswell, the bank president. The complication here is the secondary bit of your lie all those elements that differentiate it from other similar content. I'm just trying to spice it up. Okay, so then play for some pepper. Stop spending my money. Friends, for example, established the lie of working-class people somehow managing to survive in the heart of New York City. This is the idealized romance of Manhattan life, 
as seen in the works of Candace Bushnell, Woody Allen, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Michael Musto, and Dorothy Parker. It is both aspirational and satirical. Joey, Chandler, Ross, Phoebe, Rachel, and Monica don't have real problems. They somehow get to live the dream that everybody who's ever seen the bright lights knows in their heart. They also have to deal with all the issues that we know come with such a life. Trying to land a gig, going on a blind date, performing in front of a hostile audience, dealing with a fan who was a little too obsessive. We laugh at the friends of friends because they don't realize how good they have it. The lie is the New York dream, while the fun is the New York reality. Hey, what are you doing shopping at 8 in the morning? Well, I've been up since 6, thanks to somebody's dumbass rooster. (laughs) Guys, you really should get rid of those animals. They shouldn't be living in an apartment. Yeah, especially not with all these knives and cookbooks around. Living Single, on the other hand, showcases something different in that it revolves around a cast that is much more secure. Khadija is an editor of a magazine. Max is a high-powered attorney. Kyle is a stockbroker. Sinclair, O.B., Regine, and Tripp aren't as successful, but neither do they struggle with money in the same way that the friends do. They have ambition and love and life and won't let anybody stop them. I bought all the cosmetics I ever wanted. Well, all they had anyway. (laughs) And to think, I suggested you buy a mutual fund. (laughs) Show creator Yvette Lee Bowser said she wanted to, quote, tell personal stories of myself and my friends trying to make sense of love and life in the big city, unquote but has also stated that she wanted to defy stereotypes by depicting positive, elegant, and professional portrayals of black America. Characters deal with racism, both overt and subtextual, but do not engage in melodrama or comedy that glosses over reality. They defy expectations despite their foibles. We are laughing with them, not at them. That is the fun for this show. Whereas other people would give up when faced with New York life, the main characters of Living Single never do. Why would a woman who thinks of a one-night stand as a long-term commitment do something this permanent to herself? <laughs> it's creative expression. Let's the world know who I am. Exactly how much of the world do you expect to see this tattoo? Now it's time for your work. I want you to answer each of the following questions. What is the complexity of your world that expands upon the lie? Who are the characters that engage in these complications? What are their goals, in general? How do they achieve them, in general? How do they defy audiences' expectations? After you've written those down, try to write a sentence that includes at least four of those questions. It doesn't have to be elegant for now, but it should tie into your first sentence that explains how your world diverges from ours. Take a break and really think it through if you'd like to work on your piece. Then begin again. This may all seem a little inscrutable or granular, but I guarantee that thinking it through will produce great results in the future. Much like any hobby, from cooking to woodworking to skiing to long-distance running, getting the fundamentals down first will lead to dividends later. As creators of content, these subtextual lessons will allow us to more thoroughly understand and express those stories that you need to tell. As consumers of content, being able to detect how stories get it right will allow you to find more fulfilling narratives to enjoy, or better explain why you like or dislike a particular story, if not to the world, then at least to yourself. Why do certain franchises succeed while others flame out? Why does one thriller grip you while another bores you? What are the underlying fundamentals that audiences need? If you're thinking it's not all about the meta-narrative, you're right. Execution is just as important to your lie as finding the complexity. There are any number of small ways to express your lie that add up to what brings your audiences in. 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Supernatural are broadly similar in terms of tone and story, but one has the trappings of a high school comedy. Buffy did the reading? Buffy understood the reading? When did she study? Was I supposed to study? Miss Murray's kinda hot. While the other deals with family, brotherhood, and horror. Family cares about you, not what you can do for them. Family's there, through the good, bad, all of it. They got your back, even when it hurts. There are lots of podcasts about the economy, for example, but let's explore Planet Money in Freakonomics Radio. This is Planet Money from NPR. They are both built on the quote-unquote lie that they can explain complex financial terms in ways that can be easily understood, and both use unusual stories about esoteric topics to showcase how this will be interesting, from how crowdsourcing the weight of a cow reveals the wisdom of the masses. I'm going to take everyone's guesses, take the average, and compare that to the actual weight of the ox. To the economics of sports gambling. (laughs) Of course it's gambling. The whole thing was created to gamble. That's about where the similarities end, though. And by examining their execution, we can show how the small details of a small story world can lead to big differences. Today on the show, we try to find the most expensive voters in the country, the people that campaigns spend the most to reach. Planet Money began as a podcast, and it shows. There are multiple updates a week, a variety of format lengths, generally ranging from 6 to 30 minutes, and numerous producers. It's well-researched, of course, but all of these attributes mean that Planet Money can't get into as much depth as a longer program. These are bite-sized explorations of small topics that help illuminate economic concepts that often elude even intelligent individuals. Just as important, because it updates regularly and with a wide variety of voices, Planet Money can appeal to a wide range of audiences who may tune in or out depending on the topic or the presenter. Freakonomics Radio, on the other hand, began as a book written by Stephen Dubner and Stephen Levitt, which later transitioned into a radio program with Dubner as the primary voice. Because of this foundation, the producers of the program had a more rigid structure, fewer releases, longer episodes, and a more regular schedule than Planet Money. It also meant that they could go into more detail. It's a gambling strategy only an economist can love. While it is not without lighthearted charm, Freakonomics brings a more serious tone to its exploration, which deal with rent control and abortion, as well as the SEC and macroeconomics. Dubner himself commands respect personally due to his experience and background, meaning that people who are engaged with him will tune in more regularly, even if they are not as intrigued in the topic. This is the double-edged sword of a singular voice. Joe Rogan, Mark Moran, and Katie Piper all have large, devoted fan bases and equally large audiences that will never listen to them. People don't get less crazy as they age. No, 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 no. A lot of times they get more because then they realize it's almost over. Both Freakonomics Radio and Planet Money understood their overall premise to a great degree, developed their complexities, and then looked to how their formats could help them extrapolate. They didn't fight against their formats. They allowed them to help dictate their stories and the directions that they could go. I have no doubt that the producers of Freakonomics Radio and Planet Money could create an exact copy of each other's work. But where would the fun be in that? They found their success because they worked with their medium, with their complexities, and with their lie. What are the details of your story world, then? If you've been following along, you've crafted two sentences about your story world, its lie, and the complications that surround it. So now it's time to see how all the extra elements of your tastes fill it out. I want you to write down three elements. The medium in which your story takes place, a novel, a comic book, a film. 
the length of each episode or entry, and the breadth of the cast of characters that you're going to be working with. Then, next to each of those, I want you to write three extrapolations of those elements. If you're writing a thousand-page novel, what kind of depth are audiences expecting as opposed to, say, a 20-page comic book? If you're creating an EP or a full album, what does each require in order for your target audience to consider it a success? If you're creating a stand-up routine or a sketch comedy troupe, how are you going to engage your audience in your brand of humor right off the bat? When you're done, write a pitch sentence that speaks to several of these elements in an oblique manner. You don't have to tell people that you're creating a webcomic in your pitch if you're already at a webcomic convention, but think about how webcomics work through quick, bite-sized adventures with three-dimensional characters that can lead to endlessly funny situations. Once you're finished with that, you'll have written one sentence that describes the lie of your narrative, one sentence that extrapolates that lie to make your story world more complex, one sentence that hints at all the complex attributes that will come in your exploration of this world, and a variety of other content that helps to support these three sentences or extrapolations of your lie. There are no right answers here. It's entirely up to you. You also won't be able to fit everything into three sentences. If you could, you probably don't have a complex enough narrative to support a whole world. More than that, you'll want to explore deeper themes and broader topics. These must emerge organically in order to satiate audiences without overwhelming you in preparation. That is the key to all of this, finding a way to build your world. As fun as this content can be, it is a means to an end. Build out that lie to see the world and then execute your vision in whatever form you can. Don't worry about getting it perfect. Just get it right, if that makes sense. I'm willing to look over that which you're creating and then workshop it on air. You can find me at Words of Steel, that's W-O-R-D-O-F-S-T-E-E-L-E -E -E on Twitter, or at my website, steelphilippec.com. Check out previous content and older episodes, and don't forget to subscribe on Stitcher, Pocket Casts, iTunes, or any fine podcatcher. Tune in next time as we continue to explore story world design. Until then, keep on writing and keep on dreaming. Building a Better Story World is written, produced, recorded, and sound engineered by Steel Tyler Filipek. The theme song, Asia, is by Ilya Marfin via icons8.com. All narrative clips are used under the Fair Use Doctrine, as defined by Title 17 of the United States Code, subsection 107, in that they are used for nonprofit educational work for the purpose of analysis, have been transformed from their initial records by audio engineering for podcasting, and are not substantive of the entire work or function as a direct market substitute. Audio effects are provided by freesound.org under the Creative Commons license. If you feel that this production has unfairly used a piece of audio to which you own the rights, please contact helmstarmedia at gmail.com.